Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. I have been informed um, that I have a duty that must be taken care of before we move any further. I understand that that you guys were informed on last week that my my wife and I were away. We spent a week on the beautiful island of Kauai. However, you guys were not informed that we, we did that on last week because on June 30th, we celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. Now, I, I say that because one, one, one man in the church who shall remain nameless said, you know, you should really let everybody know that you took your wife to Kauai for your 20th anniversary so that, you know, people like my wife won't think that you just went just because. <laughs> and therefore, I need to take her just because. So no, it was it was our, our 20th wedding anniversary, and um, it was uh, an amazing time uh, to to get away and to just uh, be reminded of God's goodness and of God's mercy toward us over these past 20 years, and His mercy to me in particular, as my wife has put up with me for these 20 years, and I'm grateful. Um, with that in mind, let's look again in the Sermon on the Mount. We have reached the end of Matthew chapter six. That last section, that last paragraph there in Matthew chapter 6. When we look at this issue of anxiety, let me, let me bring you up to speed and contextualize what's happening here, just in this section on the Sermon on the Mount. We're, we're dealing with a couple of issues here, namely with the issue of material wealth and personal desires. We saw in verses 19 through 21 uh, that transitory earthly treasures don't satisfy. Then in verses 22 and 23, we saw that yearning for such earthly riches blur our, our, our mental and moral vision. And finally in verse 24, we saw that a choice must be made between God and mammon. So we're, we're, we're moving down a road here, and that road has to do with our material wealth and our attitude toward material wealth. It's connected also to this issue of the Lord's Prayer, and we'll see that here momentarily. But what we're dealing with as we come to this passage about our anxiety and the Lord's provision is really a continuation of the Lord's thought as it relates to the issue of our material wealth and our material possessions. And it's very important to contextualize it so that we can grasp what's being said in this last chapter or this last passage in chapter 6 as he brings this idea sort of to a crescendo. Um, He'll revisit some of it again, and I'll sort of allude to that. But he's really bringing this idea to a crescendo. He also brings us to an issue that is of very practical importance, and that's the issue of Anxiety. Anxiety. 
It's interesting. Usually we think that the Bible deals with issues that are religious and spiritual and moral, but the Bible doesn't necessarily deal with issues that are practical or deal with issues that, that, that really affect our everyday life on a very deep level. For example, if you know someone who deals with the issue of anxiety, your first thought would probably not be to take them to the last paragraph in Matthew chapter 6. Your first thought would probably be to tell them that they need to contact a professional and perhaps get some medication. Can't say amen. You ought to say ouch. Okay? If you know somebody who has anxiety attacks, here's how we've been conditioned to think. Anxiety attacks are too big for God. You need medicine because you have a real problem. If you didn't have a real problem, then maybe God would be sufficient for you. But because you have a real problem, you know, shortness of breath and sweaty palms and, you know, rapid respiration, and you get, see, that's a real problem. God's not big enough for that problem. So what you need, because you have a real problem, is you need to go to people who deal with real problems, people who are more potent, more powerful, more pertinent, and much more relevant than God in his word could ever be. That's how we've been conditioned to think, folks. I want you to hear something here, though. Jesus gets to the root of anxiety, to the root of it. The world can get you around the edges of it, but Jesus gets you to the root of it. Here's what the world can do with anxiety, people who suffer from anxiety. The world can basically look at you and say, okay, fine. We understand all of those symptoms that you're dealing with, and we got a pill that will make all of them go away. And that's true, by the way. That's true. There's medication that will make that stuff subside. But essentially, here's what's just happened. You came in and you said, my engine light is on. They did not lift the hood. They did not diagnose the engine. They merely gave you a pill that will break the light. You follow me? My engine light is on. <laughs> we can handle that. Ping! Engine light's off. Yeah, but what about the real problem that's underneath my hood? Oh, we got nothing for that. But our conditioning says that's the right answer. This is not to say that there aren't people who have real physiological problems that need to be dealt with in a real physiological way. It's not what I'm talking about here. That's a completely different issue altogether. But what we're talking about here is something completely different, and it comes from a root cause and a root source that has to be dealt with no matter what. Look with me, if you will, at this last paragraph, beginning of verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? By the way, that's supposed to be a rhetorical question. In our culture and in our day and age, 
not so much. In our culture and in our day and age, that's an offensive thought. Jesus said, you're more valuable than the birds of the air. So when the tree huggers say they're speaking for Jesus, they're not. Okay? They're not. The tree hugger who says, no, no, you can't build on this land because there's this little field mouse who would be displaced if you build here. And you're not more valuable than that field mouse. No, Jesus says you are. Amen. You're more valuable than that. You're more valuable than that. Does that mean that we should be, you know, just sort of indiscriminate in the way that we treat the animals that the Lord has given us? No. Some we train and love. Others we kill and eat. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All right? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all them, that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Please underline verse 33. We're going to come back and talk about verse 33 in, the moment, in a moment. Okay? Well, probably the second most well-known verse in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Second only to the verse that begins the paragraph tomorrow. Judge not, lest you be judged. Okay? Just underline that. We'll get back to it. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, at first, there's a couple of things that we need to clarify here. Well, we need to clarify the idea of what's being discussed when Jesus uses this word, anxious, what it means to be anxious. Because not all anxiousness is sinful. But let me say that again. Not all anxiety, not all anxiousness is sinful. Okay. So it's not just a blanket statement here. And I know, for example, that we're well aware of other passages of Scripture. We're well aware of Philippians chapter 4 that says, be anxious for nothing. And we're going to deal with that momentarily. But, but let me say here, first and foremost, not all anxiousness, not all anxiety is sinful. It's kind of like anger. Not all anger is sinful. In fact, we're commanded to be angry. The Bible says, be angry. And yet, don't sin. There's a difference between the two. There's anger, and then there's sin. And anger is not necessarily sin, but you can be sinful in your anger. Same thing here when we're dealing with anxiety. Not all anxiety is sinful. What we're going to talk about today is sinful anxiety. But let me make this point. The word used there for anxiety really means to have an anxious concern or care, sometimes translated care based on an apprehension about possible danger or misfortune. 
to be worried about, to be anxious about. That's what we're talking about here. I'm scared. I'm fearful of what is going to happen if I don't take care of this particular situation, and it's a sinful, godless, faithless kind of fear. This word that is translated to be anxious, the Greek word is used 19 times in the New Testament. Why is it significant? Again, you know, we don't like to spend a lot of time with these sort of, you know, this sort of statistical data uh, about particular words in the New Testament. But here, it's pertinent. It's used 19 times in the New Testament. Twelve of those 19 times are in the Gospels. The other seven in the Pauline epistles. Of those 12 times that this word is used in the Gospels, six of them are in this one passage right here. So half of the times that this word is used in the New Testament, it's used right here in this paragraph that we just read. Three of the times it's used in the Lucan parallel of this passage, which means nine out of the 12 times that this word is used in the Gospels, it's used in the same sermon, six in Luke, or six in Matthew, three in Luke, but again, same sermon being communicated by both authors. So nine out of the 12 times that we see it in the Gospels, it's used here in this particular context. Now, it's also used twice, once in Matthew and once in Luke, in a parallel passage about being brought before the authorities. Jesus says when you're brought before the authorities, don't be anxious about what you will say in that time. Matthew has that and Luke has that. Those are the other two times that we see this word. And then there's one other time when this word is used in the Gospels, and that is when Jesus tells Martha that she's anxious about many things. That's it. That's how this word is used in the Gospels. Seven times it's used in the epistles. Five out of the seven it's used in 1 Corinthians. Five out of the seven in 1 Corinthians. Four out of those five is used in one paragraph in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 32. Paul uses the word five times in this whole book. And four of them are right here in this one paragraph, in this one chapter. Verse 32. And here's what I want to say about this word anxiousness as used in the epistles. It's used seven times in the epistles. Six out of the seven times, it's either positive or neutral. Six out of the seven times. The word is used either positive or neutral. It's not negative. It's not a negative word. It's used either as a positive term or as a neutral term six out of the seven times that it occurs in the epistles. Because remember, the point is not all anxiety is sin, okay? Look here beginning at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. How many think that's a negative thing? The unmarried man is anxious about how to please the Lord. He's supposed to be. That's Paul's point. The unmarried man is supposed to be anxious, concerned about, care about how to please the Lord. But look at the other one, verse 33. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. By the way, that's not negative. That's positive. In fact, 
Paul teaches later, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, some of those specific ways that a married man is to be anxious about how he's to please his wife. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 3. So here, anxiety is not a negative term. It's not a negative term. The unmarried man pointing anxiety in one direction, and he's supposed to. The married man is pointing it in another direction, and he's supposed to. And then we get the parallel for the unmarried woman versus the married woman. So again, five times here in this one paragraph, and it's either neutral in its first mention or positive in the next four mentions. It's positive. So I say again, not all anxiety is sinful anxiety. It's used again in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 20. I want you to see that. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 20. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's the same Greek word translated as concerned that elsewhere is translated as anxiety. I'm sending Timothy to you because he'll be anxious towards you in a good way. It's a good thing, and that's one of the things that's commendable about young Timothy. If I send him to you as a shepherd for you, he will have anxiety for your souls. I say again, not all anxiety is sinful anxiety, okay? That's important to keep in mind because the most famous passage that deals with this issue is found in Philippians chapter 4. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. So Paul says don't be anxious about anything. In the same letter that he uses the same word to say Timothy's a good pastor because he has that attitude toward his people. So is Paul saying in Philippians chapter 4 that any anxiety that you ever experience is sinful? No, it's not what he's saying. So when you view this word in context, and again, you know, pardon this exercise, but I believe it's important because if we don't do this, then we look at this word for anxiety, and all of a sudden, everything that we ever worry about or that we're ever concerned about makes us feel guilty and like we're sinful. For example, we, if we have passionate concern and anxiety for the souls of lost friends and family members. There are some people who come back and they go, you know, I just, I mean, the Bible says don't be anxious about anything, and I'm really kind of anxious. I want them to be saved, and I, re- I just, I just, what, what? Well, I'll tell you what. Not all anxiety is sinful anxiety. And we will not understand this passage 
if we don't understand that principle, okay? Not all anxiety is sinful anxiety. But this text in its context in the Sermon on the Mount makes it clear what the Lord is talking about. And what is he talking about? Several things. Number one, ungodly anxiety is the result of an over-temporalized perspective. Look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus is being very clear here. Don't, don't be anxious about those temporal things. Don't have an over-temporalized perspective. It's not the life. It's not, I mean, life is more than what you eat or drink. It's about more than what you put on your body. This is not just an issue of clothing. It's not just an issue of eating. It's not just an issue of you having the things that you want and the things that you desire. When, when anxiety becomes sinful is when anxiety focuses us in on an over-temporalized perspective and we are thinking more about this world and the things of this world and the things that we want and the things that we desire than we are about the one who is the giver of every good and pleasant gift. So we're concerned about the gift than the giver. This is deadly in the modern American church. It's deadly. Why? Because there is a brand of Christianity. And I, I'm really hesitant to even use the word Christianity. I only use the word Christianity so that we can all understand the context that we're coming from here. It's a brand of Christianity, using Christianity as loosely as you possibly can, that perverts this idea. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says commenting on this issue. This teaching could hardly be more appropriate for the church than it is today. Some parts of the church are almost totally engulfed by teaching that appears on the surface to be spiritual, but simply panders to the anxiety of the worldly heart. It offers health and wealth, happiness, excuse me, happiness and joy as the inevitable accompaniments of faith. Instead of delivering us from our fascination with this world, such teaching only immerses us further in it. We fall into the error of taking material prosperity as the ultimate mark of God's blessing, whereas Jesus tells us the mark of God's blessings are poverty of spirit, mourning for sin, and persecution for the sake of righteousness. Real spirituality is not seen in the gathering of wealth, but in being delivered from loving it, whether we possess it or do not have it. Amen. But it's happening all around us, folks. You turn on your television, and unfortunately, if you watch Christian television, the overwhelming majority of what you see is creating the kind of anxiety that Jesus is trying to deliver his people from. Because they're creating this picture of Christianity that says you, you exist to have things, to acquire things. How many of you have seen this book, The Secret? Y'all seen this book, The Secret? Here's what's amazing about this book, The Secret. Off the charts bestseller, this book, The Secret. What's amazing about this book is that this book is finding its way into the hands of nominal Christians, into the hands of people who say that they believe in Jesus. This is one of those books that Oprah held up on her TV show. 
and the next day was all she wrote. Amen? I pray sometimes, Lord, let Oprah pick up one of my books, even if she just spits on it and says, I hate this book. I hate it. So if y'all want to know how to pray, no. Um, But listen to this. Listen to this. I, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. This is what is in this book, The Secret. And this is what many Christians are reading. The title of this chapter is How to Use the Secret. And the secret is really the law of attraction and how to attract things to you. Listen to this from James Ray. If you think about Aladdin and his lamp, Aladdin picks up the lamp, dusts it off, and out pops the genie. The genie always says one thing, your wish is my command. The story now goes that there are three wishes, but if you trace the story back to its origins, there's absolutely no limit whatsoever to the wishes. Think about it. Now, let's take this metaphor and apply it to your life. Remember, Aladdin is the one who always asks for what he wants. Then you've got the universe at large, which is the genie. Traditions have called it so many things, your holy guardian angel, your higher self. We can put any label on it, and you choose the one that works best for you. But every tradition has told us there's something bigger than us. And the genie always says one thing, your wish is my command. Now listen to the author's comment. This wonderful story demonstrates how your whole life and everything in it has been created by you. The genie has simply answered your every command. The genie is the law of attraction, and it, always, it is always present and always listening to everything that you speak, think, and act. The genie assumes that everything you think about, you want, that everything you speak about, you want, that everything you act upon is what you want. You are the master of the universe, and the genie is there to serve you. Non-Christian, right? Heretical, right? Listen to this. This is from Dr. Fred Price, one of the most prominent teachers on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Fred Price says, and I quote, now this is a shocker, but God has to be given permission to work in this earthly realm on behalf of man. Yes, you are in control. So if man has control, who no longer has it? God. When God gave Adam dominion, that meant God no longer had dominion. So God cannot do anything in this earth unless we let him. And the way we let him or give him permission is through prayer. God's the genie. How about this? He wants us to have a little heaven on earth right here where we are. You can accomplish your dreams before you go to heaven. How can you do that? By tapping into God's power inside of you. Please understand that those are all things from which you have already been set free. But here's the catch. If you don't appropriate and take advantage of your freedom, if you don't get your thoughts, your words, and your attitudes going in the right direction, it won't do you any good. You may be setting back waiting for God to do something supernatural in your life, but the truth is God is waiting on you. You must rise up in your authority, have a little backbone and determination and say, I'm not going to live my life in mediocrity. Interesting. That's from a little book called Your Best Life Now. It's the same 
heretical, godless, unbiblical garbage. And because it's mainstream, what we create is an entire culture of Christian people who are anxious about what they will eat and what they will drink and what they will wear, anxious about what they will drive, anxious about what they will have, and they believe that it's really Christian to think like that. And what's unchristian is to not have all of those things that they so covet when Jesus says the exact opposite. You have an over-temporalized perspective. You're living for the here and the now. Why do you have anxiety? Because you want this stuff that doesn't last, will never satisfy, and was never meant to satisfy. You will never have enough of it, and you're anxious because somehow you believe. Just one more thing. Just one more experience. Just one more possession. Just one more, whatever it is. We have an over-temporalized perspective. Instead of saying, I'm crucified with Christ, and yet I live. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. In this life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. We don't think that way. Listen to this in James. He's not talking about the issue of anxiety, but listen to the principle here. James chapter 4, the first four verses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Why do you fight? Why do you quarrel? Because of anxiety over temporal things. It's always because of anxiety over temporal things. It's things you want and can't possess. So you will fight, you will murder, you will quarrel in order to obtain those things that you just can't live without. And in fact, you could live without them before you knew that they were there, but once you found out that they were even possible, you had to have them. You were fine. You were fine just going along. You were just, Lord, I love you. I'm so grateful you've been so good to me. You've given me more than I could ever want. I just don't know how to thank you. Oh, two for one. It's two for one. You've got to get it if it's two for one, right? Do you need it? No, but it's two for one. And the anxiety starts. The anxiety starts. Because we have an over-temporalized perspective. It's amazing. You walk around the streets of the poorest countries in the world, and there's a familiar sound. Children playing in the dirt with sticks and old tires and tree branches and just whatever they could find. You walk around our streets, the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth, and what do you hear? I'm bored. Trained and conditioned in anxiety. 
There's never enough. We have an over-temporalized perspective. And we actually believe that there is something in the here and the now that will satisfy us. It will not. You single people in the room, there are some single people, and they're anxious about getting married. All they can think about is getting married. Because if you just get married, then finally you will have that thing that is missing. And that one person who will be your one true love, and for the rest of your life, you walk around and you will hear, They will play that at your wedding and never again. (laughs) And then what happens? We get anxious within the context of our marriage. Why? Because this person is not satisfying me. Newsflash. They never could. And if you get rid of that one and go get another one, you find the same problem. We have an over-temporalized perspective. We're living for the here and the now. Not only that, ungodly anxiety is an unproductive waste of mental energy. Look at verse 27. Look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? In other words, we're anxious about all these things, and our anxiety is completely unproductive. It's a waste of mental energy. What are you going to do? What are you going to accomplish by being anxious about those things? What are you going to accomplish? Absolutely nothing. Your anxiety is unproductive. Your anxiety will not accomplish anything. Hear me, ladies. This is something that often happens between husbands and wives. Here's what often happens between husbands and wives. There's something going on, and it's a stressful situation. And the wife, you guys tend to be more anxious than we are. Take that up with Eve when you meet her. The wife is anxious. And here's what she adds to her anxiety, as if her anxiety was not problem enough. First of all, wife is anxious about X, whatever X is. And she's focusing on that. What is it going to accomplish? Nothing. Now she adds to her anxiety because she looks at her husband who has the audacity to not be as anxious as she is right now. How dare you not be as anxious over this as I am? You just don't love me. If you did, you would be as anxious as... Stop me if this at all sounds familiar to anyone. I am wasting my energy on anxiety, and here you are not wasting yours. What kind of husband are you anyway? Do you not realize that there are hours that you could have poured down this same black hole with me? Love me. Join me. I know it doesn't sound like that in your head at the time, but trust me, that's what we're saying, folks. That's what we're saying. And again, I'm not talking about us being callous 
about things that are very important. That's not my point. Not at all. Remember, we're talking about ungodly anxiety here. Unproductive. I'm not talking about not thinking about things that we ought to think about. I'm not talking about failing to plan things that we ought to plan. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not it, okay? And I'm not talking about, hey, you know that there's a leak? There's a leak in the roof. That's something you probably need to be a little anxious about. Those tend to get bigger, amen? And we can do something about that. So let's do that. Let's think about it. Let's make a plan, and let's go execute our plan. There's a difference, however, between making a plan and then executing a plan and being anxious. When you're anxious, there's no planning. When you're anxious, you know what you're doing? You are doing the best you can to think about the worst possible outcome for this scenario, although you have absolutely no evidence that it's even remotely possible. Amen, somebody. Okay, but, but babe, really, I mean, really, I mean, you know, there's not going to be a, the sun's not going to burn out, really. Yeah, but it could. And then what would we do? The waste of mental energy and effort. Unnecessary anxiety. Thirdly, ungodly anxiety is a symptom of faithless self-reliance. Faithless self-reliance. Look at verses 26 and then 28 through 30. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? Look at verse 28. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the livings of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? It's faithlessness and it's self-reliance. The God of the universe has created you, has breathed into you the breath of life. In him you live and move and have your being. He woke you up this morning clothed in your right mind, and yet somehow you believe that he's not capable of meeting your every need. Faithless. I have to accomplish this because God's just about the big stuff. No. No. Now, let's put a footnote here because here's where some people go off the rails. Look at verse 33. I told you to mark verse 33. Here's, Here's where people go off the rails. Yes, we need to have faith that God will provide for us. We absolutely do. It makes sense. It's completely illogical to think that God won't provide for us. But then they get to verse 33. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these, these things will be added to you. Here's what that's turned into with the Fred Prices of the world and, you know, with, with, with the secret and things of this nature. Seeking the kingdom becomes a means to an end. And it sounds a little something like this. If you really want the big house and the fancy car and nice money and all this sort of stuff, what you do is you seek God's kingdom because when you seek God's kingdom, he'll give you this stuff. 
So here's God. God's in heaven, and he's got this big treasure trove, all right? And, and, and his treasure trove is situated in the direction of the kingdom. And so God's digging into his treasure trove, and whenever he finds somebody looking towards the kingdom, there you go. Are you there you go. That's what we turn it into. Let me give you a couple of points of correction here. When he says, first seek the kingdom and all these things will be added to you, he's not saying do A so that you can get B. He's saying do A. And in doing A, you don't have to worry about B. There's a difference between the two. Just, Just do that. Just do kingdom. Just think kingdom. Just live kingdom. Don't worry about the rest of that. God's concerned with all of that. God will take care of all of that. God will make that provision for you. That's the first thing. We have to have the right orientation of the text. Here's the second thing. What we're talking about is food and clothing. That's all. The text is not saying big, fine, nice, fancy house, big cars, big... That's not what the text teaches. The text says clothing, like the lilies, stuff to cover you, gold, jewels, not not in the text. It's not there. In other words, God will see to it that you have enough food to not die and enough clothes to not go naked. Anything other than that is gravy. Amen? And there's a bunch of gravy in the room. Amen? And literally some back there in the back, by the way. Otherwise, think about this. Think about this. Uh, Otherwise, here's what we'd have to say. We'd have to say that all those people in the rest of the world, 70 to 85% of whom have nothing near the kind of wealth we experience. By the way, about half the people in the world between half and two-thirds of the people in the world live on the equivalent of $2 a day. Are we really prepared to say that all of those people, by definition, are not seeking the kingdom of God because if they were, they'd have stuff? Are we really prepared to say that? There are godly people who love God with every fiber of their being who live on next to nothing. But you know what? God feeds them. God clothes them. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about extravagance. Folks, understand something. We are an absolute freak of nature from a historical perspective. Our country, the wealth that we've amassed, the personal wealth that the average American has, it is, it is an absolute blip on the historical screen. And it's an incredible burden. Because it creates many of the anxieties with which we wrestle. Many a Christian in poor, absolute poverty-stricken third-world countries has said about Christians in America, I don't see how you could do it. I don't see how you could be a Christian and serve God and love God and trust God living in a place like that with all of the things that you have. 
How many of us? Think about it. Those of you who've been married for a long time, and those of you who didn't necessarily do the whole, you know, American dream, grow up, get wealthy, then get married thing, and maybe you got married, you were young and struggling, didn't have much of anything. You know when you meet people who got married like that? You know what they tell you? They say, man, those are some good times. How do I know? That's us, man. 20 years ago last week, we had next to nothing. And we sit around and reminisce sometimes about those unbelievable days, just amazing days. And there's one day that Brizzy and I reminisce about on a number of occasions. I don't know what had happened, but it was one of those times when just things just sort of went off the rails. It was just a tough season. We got on our faces before God and we prayed. And there was a knock at the door. We go to the door, and there is a lady from our church with two bags of groceries. She says, you know what? The Lord just put you all on my heart. I don't know if you need any of this, but here. Was it extravagant? No, it was chicken and beans and rice and glorious things like that, okay? In fact, had there been jewelry in the bag, you know what we would have done? We'd have gone down to the pawn shop and sold it so we'd get some chicken and some beans and some rice and glorious things like that. Don't abuse this text. This is not about the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. One of the reasons that we have anxiety is because we desire too much. We're not satisfied. And it's an issue of selfless or selfish, faithless self-reliance. Why am I anxious? Because I'm worried about how I am going to work this out. God is not involved in the equation. Therefore, I can't breathe. I'm shaking. I'm sweating. Why? Because I can't figure out how I am going to accomplish this. Newsflash, you can't even accomplish your next breath. Who do you think you are? And the sooner you embrace that, the sooner you realize that anxiety is faithless, godless self-reliance. And that's all it is. There's a final piece. Ungodly anxiety is direct disobedience to the clear teaching of Scripture. It's sin. It's sin. Ungodly anxiety is sin. Well, you know, no, I'm just sort of a natural worrier. No, no, no. The Bible says it's sin. No, well, you know, I just kind of grew up in a situation where, no, it's sin. Plain and simple. It's sin. This goes back to what we talked about before. You don't believe what God has said. You're calling God a liar. 
Look with me, if you will. We've talked about these before. But look at chapter 6 and verse 6. Just turn back there. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees you in secret will reward, will reward you. Go to verse 8. Oh, not 8, 18. They think that they're fasting may not be seen by others, but your father who's in secret, or that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your father who's in secret. Next part of the verse. And your father who sees you in secret will what? Reward you. There's a couple other things that we see here again and again and again. And that's this phrase. Your father knows what you have need of. Your father sees your father knows, your father cares, and your father is completely able to supply all your needs. What does your anxiety say? I don't believe you, God. That's what anxiety says. I know you say you see me in a secret place. I know you say you hear me when I pray. I know you say that you will supply all of my needs. I know you say that, but I don't believe it. I believe I'm on my own. And I believe if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. I believe you take care of the big stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You keep the sun far enough away from us so that we don't fry, close enough so that we don't freeze. That's good. I'm glad you do that. You've given the earth enough mass so that gravity keeps us here, but not too much so that gravity would crush us. That's real good, God. You bring the seasons when they're supposed to come. That's great. You get much credit, many kudos for that. All of these things you do. However, this circumstance that I'm dealing with is beyond the comprehension, the scope, or the ability of a God who controls the universe in the palm of his hand. Thank you very much. Oh, I'd never say that to God. You would, and you do. Would that I never said that to God. But you and I both know that's not true. Somehow we believe the God who took care of our greatest need by sending his son, the spotless, sinless lamb of God, to die on our behalf that we might be adopted into God's family, would somehow bring us into his household as loved and cherished children, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, merely to neglect and mistreat us? Not so. Not so. Seek his kingdom. Be a kingdom kid. Live in the home of this one who has redeemed you, who has adopted you, who has reconciled you, who has made you his own, and know that living in his household means that he will meet your needs. 
You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to be anxious about that. He will meet your needs. Don't turn your focus to those things. Well, okay, I get that, but what happens when those bills come in and we don't have enough to pay them? You do what I just said. You turn your focus to God. There's a couple of options. Here's option number one. Here's a bill. Here's my wallet. Nothing in here that can take care of that. Option number one. Option number two. I trust you, Lord. I trust you. And just to be clear, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we look to God and say, God, I'm your child. Here's this situation. You've got to fix it. You know what it may be? It may be, God, I'm your child. I'm in sin. That's why I can't handle this. Would you deal with me? Maybe I don't need this. Would you show me that? Maybe experiencing this loss is a way for you to get my attention. Don't we as parents understand that? Sometimes your kids get a certain age, the greatest thing you can do for them is let them fall hard. How many of us know people in our lives who struggle and suffer to this day because they were never allowed to fail? So, no, I'm not talking about name it and claim it. But we turn to God. We seek his kingdom. And sometimes seeking his kingdom may mean that there's some stuff that we throw off. Let me make this note of clarification. I have not said, I am not saying, I would not say that it's bad to have stuff. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't come close to teaching that. Not at all. There's a difference, though, between you having stuff and stuff having you, and that's the problem. There's also a difference when we seek the stuff instead of seeking God, and that's the problem. In the midst of these difficult economic times, hear me, folks. There's a couple of ways that we can approach this. Number one, we can be anxious and stress, like the people who sit there all day, every day, just watching the market, and every time something goes down, it's like the end of the world. Every time something goes up, they're ready, you know, we can be like that. The other option is God's in control, and we trust him. We do what he says do the way that he says do it, and we trust him. I've lost everything. Newsflash. Wasn't yours to begin with. This is the source of our anxiety. Be anxious about the right things. Be anxious in the right way. But don't come to that place of sinful self-reliance. Don't come to that place 
of not believing God. Don't come to that place of accusing our adoptive father of not caring enough about us to meet our basic needs. And please, by all means, don't come to that place where we pervert the gospel and change it into a means to an end and create the very anxieties against which Jesus warned us. He is our hope. He is our answer. And he is more than enough. Let's pray. Does the Bible endorse slavery? This is Wretched Radio. Uh, Pastor Jesse Johnson, Emmanuel Bible Church, also author at Cripplegate, outstanding website. You should visit it regularly. I plagiarize from him regularly. Although, unlike, I don't know, some preachers, I'm actually willing to give you credit, Jesse, <laughs> for the great that you do. All these days, you know, plagiarism doesn't seem to be a big deal. Your doctoral thesis was on the distinction between American slavery and biblical slavery, both Old and New Testaments. Let's see what, if any, distinctions there are between those two industries to see how Christians respond to the accusation that the Bible supports American slavery. So, the big generalization, let's start there. What is the big difference or differences between American slavery and the slavery that we read about in the Bible? Well, American slavery at its core is the kidnapping and ownership of an individual in perpetuity. I mean, that's kind of the, the essence of American slavery. Biblical slavery in the Old Testament, certainly that existed in some of the Canaanite areas and, and some of the, the pagan nations, but in Israel, Right in the Torah, in the book of Exodus, central to the Israelite understanding of slavery is that Israel would have a form of slavery, largely for the protection of the slaves themselves. It would be capped at six years of service as a slave. If the slave ran away from their master, they were granted freedom. It was, a, it was a, against the Torah to send a, a runaway slave back to his, his former owner or master. Like That was against the law. If a slave was injured, he was granted his freedom, or abused, he was granted his freedom. He got his freedom after six years. Uh, it was a capital crime in, in the Torah to be found in possession of somebody kidnapped for the purpose of slavery. So if you stole somebody for slavery and you were found in possession of that person, you would be put to death. So that right away shows the fundamental distinction between slavery in Israel and slavery in the United States. So that most basic part of Old Testament slavery was followed in the United States. There would have been no American slavery. All right. With, with that generalization, you did say that this was primarily done for the protection of the slaves. Unpack that. Well, it, one of the most common ways that somebody entered slavery was through, through debt. They would be owing somebody uh, a debt and they couldn't pay. And you just think of like, think of kind of the middle age stories of the debtor's prison where people are thrown in there until they can pay their debt, which of course is an impossibility. Israel structured around that by saying you could become a slave to, to uh, alleviate your debt with a maximum term of six years. On the seventh year, you were granted your freedom. You had to have enough of your supplies to, to start a new life. And if you wanted to, after that seventh year, to return to your master, you could return to your master. You could go in willingly and say, I love Yahweh and I love my master in front of a priest who, who puts the, the nail through your ear at the doorpost. And there's witnesses to this, so it wasn't uh, compulsory. 
this is all designed to protect the family unit and to uh, and to protect the livelihood of the slaves, uh, those that enter into it because of their own debt. This was not God's design for people. And Paul picks this up in First Corinthians seven, where you know Paul says, "Listen, freedom is better than slavery." We all understand that, but people found themselves in slavery uh, through various circumstances and injury, widowhood, selling your kids. You think of Second uh, Kings four, where the woman says, "You know, she's weeping and she's like, my husband's died, my kid can't afford." Uh, to work yet. I'm going to lose my kids to slavery. It was, it was designed in that sense to alleviate the debt. And so Christian ethics or Old Testament biblical ethics come in and say, we're not just going to let families be ripped apart. We're not going to let people spend the rest of their life in slavery. We're going to give some guidance to this that masters have to provide for their slaves for a period of six years as really a way to foster a kind of healthy environment in Israel. That made Israel, by the way, stand out from the other nations. The nations around them had slaves without protections, without rights. You know, they run away, they get beaten, they get killed, et cetera. Their kids are enslaved forever. Israel was just really different from that. Deuteronomy 4 says that's one of the reasons the nations are going to come to Israel and see God's wisdom and how they structured their government. That would be the difference between, we'll say, Old Testament slavery and the Mosaic laws that governed that institution and relationship, probably a better word, and American slavery. So American slavery, man selling forever till you die, yeah. mistreatment and, and, and not being treated with a great deal of dignity. Versus yeah, and even in American slavery, I don't want to jump in on you here, but even in American slavery, there's this whole deprivation of rights. In Israel, slavery wasn't there. I mean, you think of the fourth commandment, right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment applies the day of rest to you your slaves, any visitors, any foreigners in your household. Like that is in the Ten Commandments. It's not confined to the Fourth Commandment. The idea is that God's commandments apply to all within Israel equally and without discrimination, even those who are enslaved. All right, that's Old Testament Mosaic Law. Let's fast forward to the New Testament because, of course, we have the Book of Philemon. This is Paul sending a slave who had escaped, apparently run away, who got saved. How, yeah. Talk about you know, you, sends him back. What's the difference between the institution that we read about in the New Testament versus what's described and defined in the Mosaic laws? Well, the New Testament, Greco-Roman Empire, Romans, very bad. The Romans took people into slavery by conquering their city. You rebelled against Rome. The whole city could be enslaved. They did kidnap people all the way around, you know, North Saharan Africa, put them into slavery. They, you know, brought in slaves from England and the British Isles. So the, the Romans definitely did kidnap people, sell them into slavery, treat them like property, deprive them of rights, and all of that. The church is growing up in the middle of that. So it's fascinating to see how Paul interacts with that. I mean, first of all, the New Testament takes the concept of slavery and applies it to Christians, and, and positively and negatively. You know, you were a slave to God, a slave to sin through your redemption, which is a slave market term. The word redemption is a word from the slave market, where somebody would purchase somebody with a cost from the slave market. The Bible speaks of us as slaves to sin, redeemed by Christ. God chose us, paid for us, ransomed us. We now have our freedom, but in our freedom, we're now a doulos and Christos. We're a slave of Christ uh, as, as a Christian. So you have freedom from the law, freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the slavery of sin, but you have a new master who cares for you and loves with you, Christ. Now, the ethics then, as that relates, 
throughout the New Testament, you know, Paul didn't lead the charge to overthrow Roman, Roman slavery. It would not have been in his capacity to do. Had that been his goal, he could not have achieved it. But instead, Paul really does undercut uh, and undermine the Roman institution of slavery by what happens in Philemon. You know, Anisimus is a slave, runs away. He's useful. Anisimus is a pun. He's useful to Paul. Paul finds him as useful and then sends him back to Philemon. You know, Paul could have kept Anisimus forever and ever with a clean conscience. After all, the Old Testament law forbid him from sending Anisimus back as a runaway slave. And yet Paul undermines the whole institution of Roman slavery by sending Anisimus back. And he sent him back and he told Philemon, you need to receive him as an equal. You need to receive him as somebody who's helpful to me and useful to me. And so it's worth thinking, what does that look like as a slave owner? a runaway slave, you're supposed to receive him as an equal in the church. This letter is going to be read to the whole church. They're all going to hear this. All eyes are now going to go to Philemon. I mean, what's he going to do? And you can see how that ethic, if you were living with that ethic, you cannot maintain the Roman system of slavery for very long. It eventually will be undermined within the church. You know, who cares about the Roman world? That wasn't Paul's goal. But in the church, they're going to live out that there is neither slave nor free Jew nor Gentile, you're all under the foot of the cross. Let's let's make a YouTube short. Okay. I'm I'm a I'm an aggressive unbeliever and you're evangelizing me, Pastor Johnson. And yeah. I say, Yeah, well the Bible endorses slavery. Huh? Well, I would say first Timothy one ten says that slave owners, and the word there is, is kidnappers, those that steal people for the purpose of enslaving them, have no basis to be part of the church of God. They should be expelled. So God clearly condemns the kind of slavery we knew in the United States. He condemns it as wrong and sinful, but then Paul goes on to offer forgiveness to all those who put their faith in Christ. And by the way, in 1 Timothy 1, it's not just slave owners and kidnappers who are condemned. It's also those who revile their parents, the sexually immoral. There's a whole list of sins. He goes through the, the Ten Commandments there. There's a whole list of sins that when you violate, you deserve God's judgment, just like the slave owner. Yet, praise God, there's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. See, you just can't, see, because you're witnessing to me, you, you, you just kind of brushed away my polemic and turned it into a gospel presentation. That is so pastoral of you. Set me up there, Don. <laughs> I, I think that's outstanding, actually. I, I wish more shepherds had the heart of an evangelist that always want to be proclaiming the gospel. So the next time, Pastor Johnson, somebody says that the Bible endorses slavery, no, because you're thinking of slavery, the American institution. The Bible does talk about a relationship that is radically different, and the Bible is opposed to mistreatment. It's opposed to violence. It is opposed to owning people in perpetuity and certainly to kidnapping them. So the accusation is just downright false. Pastor Johnson, continue to be a good shepherd, continue to be a great evangelist, and keep writing stuff for Cripplegate, because I can use your material like nobody's business. Uh, thank you so much, brother. You're great. This is Wretched Radio. Canada, a nation of death. This is Ken Ham, and our Creation Museum hosts the world's most powerful pro-life exhibit. Earlier this year, two bioethicists in Canada 
wrote a paper arguing for assisted suicide that it should be allowed for those whose, quote, social conditions made life intolerable. In other words, poverty or a lack of housing or medical care are reasons to have a doctor end your life. This is really an attempt to be like God, just like in the Garden of Eden. But we're not God, and we have no right to try and be God. Assisted suicide is murder. It's not compassionate and merciful. It takes advantage of the poor and sick. It devalues precious human lives. Decisions of life and death, they belong to God. Discover more about the sanctity of human life when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll find many more faith-building programs at AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. There's a subtle error that's crept into the church that maintains that repentance is merely a change of mind about Jesus, that it has nothing to do with sin, being sorry for sin, or turning from sin. Is this the most misunderstood word in the entire Bible? What word is it? The word I'm thinking about is the word repent. 90% of people in the world think the word repent either means asking for forgiveness or stop sinning and being a good person. The thing is, though, that's not what the biblical definition of it is. In the New Testament, it's the Greek word metanoia, and it literally just means to change your mind. So whenever you see the word repent in the New Testament, no, it means to change your mind. What that means, then, is it's a changing of mind from unbelief to believing in Jesus. What that means, then, is it's a changing of mind from unbelief to believing in Jesus. However, Scripture makes it clear that repentance is turning from sins, plural. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he has committed, repent and turn from all your transgressions. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Note again, this is sins, not the sin of unbelief. 
unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Again, iniquities is plural, not the singular sin of unbelief. And that repentance and remission of sins, plural, should be preached in his name among all nations. If repentance is just a change of mind about Jesus, why does the Bible speak of godly sorrow producing repentance? For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Godly sorrow clearly means to be sorry for sin. In Psalm 38, David said, For I will declare my iniquity, I will be in anguish over my sin. Listen to Scripture address sinners telling them to be sorry for their sins. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Repentance is merely a change of mind about Jesus. Why does Scripture tell sinners to lament and mourn and weep? A Christian perpetually turns from sin. This is called the fruit of repentance. It's evidence of salvation, not the reason for it. We're saved by grace and grace alone without works. And the way to obtain saving grace is to do what Jesus said to do, repent and believe. A.W. Tozer said, It is my opinion that tens of thousands, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ, and they have not been saved. The Old Testament is the law, and as Paul puts it, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to show us our need. Now, when people confront the Ten Commandments, there they see their failure. And it's only when they realize this truly, they'll see their failure, and it's only people who see their failure who are ready to listen to the offer of salvation. Those who fail to open up the spiritual nature of the law as Jesus did, will then skip over the serious nature of sin. And with a shallow view of sin, no wonder they think sorrow for sin is unnecessary. Such an error has filled the church with false converts. And those who propagate this error are more than likely strangers to biblical repentance themselves. Oh, my. Glad I got to talk to you. You too? You believe in God? I don't. You scared me. But then... I'm starting to see what you're trying to tell me. Did you ever pray? In my youth, I used to pray because my family is very religious. Are you Christian? Yes, sir. What is a Christian? I don't really know. I just, I was born into it. Do you believe in God? I don't. Scientists have proved that we evolved from primates. I believe it because there's actual evidence. There was an explosion that happened, the Big Bang. And then from that, billion years later, with there's microscopic specks from, and on the Earth when these two hit meteors on Earth when it was barely forming. How do you know this? Scientists. You believe the scientists? Yes. It's called blind faith. There's no evidence of Darwinian evolution. How can you observe and test something that happened 60 million years ago? It doesn't pass a scientific test. It has to be received by blind faith. Now, there is evidence for what's called adaptation, Animals adapt. Birds get beaks. Their beaks change. You and I change as we get older. Our skin adapts when sunlight comes on it. That's called adaptation. But as for the theory that we have a common ancestor with primates, 
total conjecture, total blind faith, no evidence whatsoever. The Bible, however, has scientific evidence to back it up. The Bible says God created man and woman in his image, male and female, so they could reproduce, and every animal brings forth after its own kind. So we can see that in creation. Dogs have cows, have calves. Nothing changes kind. Everything the Bible says is provable and testable in creation. Do you think you're a good person? Yes. Do you think you're a good person? Yeah, I think I'm a ongoing person. Could it be that you don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible because you're doing things you know are morally frowned upon by him? That's a really good question. You want me to be specific? Make it a little bit more specific. When did you last look at pornography? Last week. Last week. I've been busy lately, so yeah, last week. What do you think God thinks of that? Bad? Yeah, Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. I did not know that. Have you lied and stolen? <sighs> for sure. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes. It's called blasphemy, punishable by death in the Old Testament. Is that serious? Yeah. Get sex before marriage? Yeah. So here's a quick summation for you. This is for you to judge yourself. Louis, you've just told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer at heart, and you have to face God on Judgment Day. If he judges you by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, will he be innocent or guilty, heaven or hell? <sighs> Sounds like hell right now. It certainly does. The Bible says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no adulterer, no blasphemer will inherit God's kingdom. Do you remember the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death? Saying God is paying you in death for your sin. Like a judge looks at a criminal who's committed multiple murders, he says, you said you're a good person, but you've committed multiple murders. I'm going to show you how serious your crime is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what we're paying you. And Isaiah, sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row. Your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. So does it concern you that if you die today, you'd end up in hell? It actually does. You know, open my eyes today. I ain't gonna lie. Glad I got to talk to you. You too? Yes, sir. Open my eyes. Because I ain't never had nobody be this real to me like that, you know, about God. So, you know, I mean, if you're watching this, man, this guy is real talk, man, real talk, real talk. Like, you know what I'm saying? I don't come from the best, you know, the best side, but you feel me? But it's real, though. I understand his language. He's clear on communicating with me, like, you feel me, about what God really is to me. And I appreciate that for real, though, man. Horrifies me. I've just met you, but I love you. I don't want you to go to hell. That breaks my heart. You're a living human being. You're not a dog. You love life. You appreciate the blueness of the sky, the sound of music, love and laughter, birds in the morning, friends and family. All these things give you great pleasure, and they're gifts from God, and you don't want to give them up because of your love for sin. Now, what did God do for guilty sinners so he wouldn't have to go to hell? Confession? No. Confessing doesn't help. It's like saying to a judge, I confess I committed the crime. He's going to say, good. We've got a confession out of you. You actually know, but you don't understand it. Because you don't understand it, you don't value it. What did God do for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? He died on the cross for us. Yeah, yeah. you know that? Yeah. Now, most people know that, but they don't know this. And guys, if you can get a grip of this, it's going to change everything for you. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he cried out, it is finished, just before he died. He was saying, paid in full. Here in court, and you've got speeding fines. A judge will let you go if someone pays those fines. Even though you're guilty, you say, Louis, you're out of here. You're guilty, but someone's paid you fine. You can leave. And it's legal. Well, God can legally take the death sentence off you. He can let you live forever because of what Jesus did on the cross through his death and resurrection. And all 
all you have to do to find everlasting life is so simple a child can understand it is repent of your sins, that means you turn from your sins, and then trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. So if you're going to jump out of a plane 10,000 feet, why would you put on a parachute? So you don't go and die? Yeah, your motivation is fear. You fear dying. And that fear is your friend, it's not your enemy, because it's making you put on a parachute. And Luis, because I love you, I've tried to put the fear of God in you today, hoping you'll see that fear is your friend, not your enemy. I wanted to make your heart thump. I want to make you sweat a little, get a dry mouth. So you'd say, man, this is serious. I die in my sins, I'm going to be damned. That'll make him in business with God and let go of your darling sins. And say, God, I need, a, I need to change your heart. And God will change your heart. You'll be born again with a new heart, new desires. It'll be your own personal miracle where God is so recreates you. You're a brand new person to a point where you say, I don't believe what's happened because you want to please the God that gave you life more than anything. And that's what happens when you're born again. You get right with God. Is this making sense? Yeah, you actually... Everything you say right now, that that actually got my heart pumping. Now, you actually did. Well, you scared me, but then I'm starting to see what you're trying to tell me. And my motivation is love. I wouldn't talk to you like this if I didn't care about you. And examine the earnestness of my tone. We're talking about your eternal salvation. It's a life and death issue. Your life and your death. I'm already in the boat and I'm saved. I'm just concerned about you and I want to see you in heaven, not in hell. So you're going to think about what we talked about? Yes. When are you going to repent and put your faith in Christ? I want to do it immediately, but I don't know if I can yet because I don't know how, how long it will take for me to repent my sins. Five seconds. Really? If you've had an argument with someone, let's say I was with your mother, how long does it take you to say, I'm sorry, Mom? Immediately. Right. And she'll just say, oh, honey, give me a hug. And that's exactly what God does. You just say, God, I'm really sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. He forgives in an instant. You don't burn it. You don't have to well up anything. Not your words. He cares about it. It's your heart. He sees the motive. Are you sorry for your sins? Yeah. Can I pray with you? Yes, please. Father, I thank you for Luis. Thank you for our encounter today that has been orchestrated by your divine hand. I pray today you'll catch a glimpse of a secret sin to be genuinely sorry catch a glimpse of your holiness and be genuinely fearful. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And this day, may he understand your love illustrated for him through that cross, find a place of true repentance, pass from death to life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you have a Bible at home? Yes, I do. Making sense? Yes. So if you two were to die today in a car crash going home, where would you go? Oh, after, after this talk. End up in hell. Yeah. So you have to repent and trust in Jesus. When are you going to do that? Immediately, actually. What about you? Right now. Are you sorry for your sins? Yes. What about you? Of course. Are you ready to repent and trust Christ now? I'm ready. Do you want to pray? I'm done. Father, I pray for these two men. Thank you for their open and honest heart for receiving the truths of your gospel. Pray today they'll find a place of genuine sorrow for their sin and repent and trust alone in Jesus and pass from death to life, be born again, be given a new heart, new desires. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We just uh, ask for forgiveness for all our Lord, on all of the many sins we have committed and done, Lord. Yes, please bless us in a special mighty way that we derive a change from any bad habits in our path, Lord. Just 
Can I give you a book I've written called Scientific Facts in the Bible? Let me grab it.
A day is coming where God will again destroy the unrighteous, men and fallen angels, this time by fire. The only way to be saved is to believe in Jesus Christ when we understand the text. When should we talk about evolution? This is Ken Ham, editor of the expose Glasshouse, Shattering the Myth of Evolution. Children get exposed to evolution at very young ages, through books, movies, and of course schools. Here's three things parents can do to protect children from the lies of the world. One, teach kids the truth from a very young age. It's much easier for them to tell the truth from lies when they're firmly grounded in truth. Two, be faithful in answering their questions. Always start with God's word. Children are curious and they need solid biblical answers. Three, take advantage of opportunities when they hear the lies of the world to point them to God's unchanging truth. Teach them to always start thinking with God's word. There's so much more to learn when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and find out more about our Ark Encounter attraction at AnswersRadio.com. That's all I got for Truth Be Be Told Radio. And join us next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.